You are listening to A Beautiful Mess, a new sermon series by Crosspoint Peachtree City. For more information, please visit our website at www.crosspointptc.com. are in a, the middle of a series. We're in week three of A Beautiful Mess. We're going through the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, we're going to go through kind of the first half here before Easter. Uh, then we're going to take a little bit of a break. We're going to do a different series, and then we're going to wrap up 1 Corinthians starting in September, and we'll go through the fall. So just to kind of let you know, when 1 Corinthians ends at Easter, like this part, it's like there's more. It's coming. So it's going to be great, and we're really excited about this series because if there is a church that is more uh, like us, if there isn't one, this is the one. This is the one that is most like us. This is the one that I think we could probably most relate with because it is the most messed up. And so many times people see church as the place where all the people who kind of have their lives all put together show up. Um, but the reality is the church is supposed to be the place where people are kind of at their low point and they're going, I need to figure this thing out. Like, I need some help. And I think church is where I can find the answer. And so that's what we want Crosspoint to be. We want to be a place where people can come in and discover that Jesus really is the answer to the question. It is, he is the person who can give them, uh, make their lives feel complete and give their life's purpose. And so um, back in those days, Corneth was the city. It was a big uh, kind of a, a port city, uh, a lot of trade happening in that city. Probably a lot of trading and a lot of things happening that probably shouldn't have happened. Um, but when I think about these cities, when I think about these biblical cities, I always have a picture in my mind of what that would look like. And maybe you're, hope, I don't know if you're anything like me, but when I think of Corneth, I think of, oh, there's maybe 500 or 1,000 people kind of hanging out in huts, and um, they're not really all that intelligent, and um, they you know, are sailing boats across the water, and that's pretty much it. But I started doing some research on this town, and here's the reality of this town. Corneth has a population of 250,000 free people and another 400,000 slaves. That's almost a quarter of a million people in the city. Can you imagine that? I mean, that's way bigger than Petrie City, right? I mean, you're talking like a major metropolis here. And so when I think of all these biblical towns, I always shrink them down in my mind, and I always forget that people congregated in mass amounts of people everywhere in this giant city. Well, Corneth was known as being a city of philosophers and had a lot of Greek influence on the city. And so uh, one, Greek, one, um, one Greek statesman put it this way. He said that on every street in Corneth, there, uh, one met a so-called wise man, who had his own solution for the world's problems. So this town really had a culture of philosophy, had a culture of human wisdom. Everybody had a theory on what they think, what was wrong with the world and how it was supposed to be made right. Everybody had a theory on why people were the way they were. Everybody had a theory on how things should be and not be. And so that was the basis for human wisdom and is what we're going to be talking about today. So let me read the passage. It's uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Um, if you have one of those Bibles, there's some Bibles in the front of the seats. 
Uh, it's gonna be, we're going to be on page 618. Sometimes it's kind of hard to find some of these books unless you've been kind of reading them for a while and be like, well, where is that in the Bible? And so it's really easy to find 618. If you can't find it that way, there's a table of contents in the front of your Bible. And let me read this for you. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and I will thwart the the cleverness of the intelligent. Where is the wise man? Where is the expert in the Mosaic law? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made the wisdom of the world foolish? For since in the wisdom of God, the world by its own wisdom did not know God, God was pleased to save those who believe by the foolishness of preaching. For Jews demand miraculous signs, and Greeks ask for wisdom, but we preach about a crucified Christ, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greek, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the wisdom of God is stronger than human strength. Think about the circumstances of your call. Brothers and sisters, not many were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were born into a privileged position. But God chose what the world thinks foolish to shame the wise. And God chose what the world thinks weak to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, what is regarded as nothing, to set aside what is regarded as something so that no one can boast in his presence. He is the reason you have a relationship with Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that all is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Last week we spoke about gospel drift, this idea of drifting away from the gospel, which is really easy for a church to do. If you look around at churches that are dying in our area, the reason they're probably dying is because they've drifted away from the main thing, which is Jesus. They may have started out that way, but then they've just kind of slowly faded. Or there's a lot of churches that may be full, but they just never talk about Jesus. They just talk about wisdom or human wisdom. And so last week, uh, Jamie was talking about this idea of putting people first, you know, this idea of drifting away from the gospel because we take and we say, Apollos is the best and Paul is the best. And so we pick a leader and we kind of uh, saddle our, our, our horses to that cart and that's who we follow rather than following Jesus. This is really the same story, just a little bit different. Uh, we're, we're, it's, there's a, a, this idea of human wisdom is causing people to drift away from the gospel. And so that's what we're going to be talking about. But what do we call human wisdom? Like, what are the things in life that we are looking towards? You know, so many times when we think about human wisdom, there's, um, you know, I've got a friend of mine who's an atheist, and so everything for him is about um, why God doesn't exist and the philosophy behind that. And everything for him is about well, what about evolution? That might be his, his important thing. Um, a lot of us think that we can just kind of go to people and say, you know, if I make a good argument about Jesus, then all of a sudden they're going to come to know him. Um, but that really rarely, rarely happens. 
Uh, very rarely do people come to know Jesus where their heart is changed as a result of their head changing. Does that make sense? And so what happens is, one, what happens is, is that they're, uh, sorry, we had a joke about how many times I would say that phrase, and Casey's going to count today, one. So uh, the reality is, is our, um, our, 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 usually what our brains change after our heart changes, and that's really what the gospel does for us. And so uh, let's kind of cruise through this today. I think this message should be a message of hope. It should be a message of encouragement. It should be something where you sit back and go, you know what, I'm so glad that Jesus did that. And that's what this is all about today. So let me read verse 18 again. It says, for the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Why would the message of the cross be foolish to people? That is the question that we have to figure out because the reality is is that people are are going, you know, I believe in human wisdom. Someone who doesn't know Jesus, their entire world is wrapped up in what they think is true. And so they believe by this standard, these type of things. One, my life is for me, okay? When I live my life, the choices that I make, the things that I do, the things that I do with my body are up to me. And so the, the human wisdom says life is all about you. Life is all about your self-centeredness. Life is all about what you can get for you. Y'all see how that happens? And that's pretty obvious. I mean, look at, look at how people rise up the corporate ladder and why they do that. Most of the time, it's for them and not something else. And so for them, the cross is foolish. And here is why the cross is foolish for them. It's foolish because how can someone who appears to be so taken advantage of, someone who appears to be such a pushover, who appears to be weak, how can that person be my savior? How can that person possibly help me in my endeavor in life. They're helpless. Can you see how the cross, from that perspective, would be so foolish? And so the flip side is, like, to us who are being saved, the cross is the power of God. So believers who are living according to the standards of God, godly wisdom, this is what, how we see it. We see the cross as, like, it is our motivation to do whatever honors God. So when we go through life, we're looking at human wisdom, and we're like, you know, it's not about me, it's about God. I'm going to make choices that's going to honor Jesus, because look what he's done for me. It's amazing. And that may include, like, giving up, like, in this entitlement thing that we have, or maybe it means that we, we sacrifice for the greater good. We realize that our lives are really not our own at all, because it's been purchased by the blood of Jesus. That is a completely different perspective. Can you see the two wisdoms, worldly wisdom and godly wisdom? The cross really realigns my entire life, my value system, what I think is important. It realigns everything. Instead of being about me, it's about Jesus. And that's what it means to be a Christian. And so it's a pretty amazing thing. He goes on to write in verse 19, he says this, He says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will thwart the cleverness of the intelligent. 
You know, we think that we can figure things out on our own without God. We think that we're pretty smart. Um, very seldom do we go into a room not thinking that we're the smartest person or we have the best ideas. I do it all the time. As a Christian, I do it all the time. I think it's human nature, it's our sin nature to think that we are always right. And so some, a person who doesn't know Jesus is gonna think the same thing. Well, I'm right. And so the wisdom of the cross shows us this. It shows us that we are not wise. It kind of puts us in perspective. It puts us really where we really are, which is in dire need of the creator of the universe to be a part of our lives. Verse 20 where is the wise man? Where is the expert of the law? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made the wisdom of the world foolish? So the wisdom of the world says, let's be independent. We need to follow a strong person. We need to follow someone who is powerful, someone who's intelligent, someone who's a conqueror. Like that's who we, in human wisdom, that's who we're looking for, right? Those kind of people. We think if you are rich, then you are somehow made good choices, and so you are successful, and so we need to follow you. But the irony of the cross is this. We would expect God to enter this world and to conquer with violence. We would expect him to come in and just level everything because that's what we perceive to be strong and that's what we perceive to be wise. We would expect God to look powerful. We would expect him to maybe show how intelligent he is by like debating with the smartest person on the planet and making them look like a baby. You know, like that's what we would expect from God. But Tim Keller put it this way: Christ did not come to bring retribution, but to bear it. I think that's an amazing quote. Christ did not come to bring retribution. He didn't come to be all-powerful in that moment. He didn't come to like level everybody and to make everybody feel dumb and to prove that he's the smartest guy in the room. He came to bear all of that, the weight of all that sin upon himself. You see, God doesn't function that way. Instead, he allowed his son to be crucified to save us. God conquered through love, and that is godly wisdom. It's really pretty cool. Verse 21, let's keep moving. For since the wisdom of God, the world by its own wisdom did not know God, God was pleased to save those who believe by the foolishness of preaching. It's a very interesting term. I always thought, when I would first, when I've read this a long time ago, this idea of foolishness of preaching, I thought, Preaching is foolish? Like, how can that be? That's really kind of weird. But when you see it from the perspective of what it really is, preaching is a proclamation, right? That's what I'm doing right now. And what we want to proclaim is we want to proclaim the gospel, which keeps us on track and keeps us from drifting. So what is the gospel? Here it is. Write it down. I think it's probably the most succinct uh, definition of the gospel. It says this. It's the fact that God saves us through a crucified Savior. The fact that God saves us through a crucified Savior. We don't find God in our own wisdom. So many times when we try to figure out life in our own wisdom, we only find 
all the other things but God. We find all the other things that distract us from Jesus being the main thing. Does that make sense to everybody? Two. That's what happens. That's the reality of it is that's what we do. We pursue wisdom and we find, it's exactly what we find, human wisdom. And we don't find God. God wants us to focus on the gospel. God wants that to be the focus and the compass for our life. It is the thing that saves us and it is the thing that sustains us. Verse 22, for God demanded miraculous signs and Greeks asked for wisdom. I think this is a great verse because it really sets out a spectrum of a response to Jesus, all right? There's kind of two opposite ends of the spectrum. And one side is this desire, both of them really reside in proof. Uh, Two sides here. One is miraculous signs. That's what the Jewish people were demanding. And on the other hand, were the Greeks, they want a good argument, So when you think about the people around you that you are maybe telling about Jesus, they're really looking for one of two things, generally. They're looking for a miraculous sign that is going to prove that Jesus really is true and really exists, or they're going to want you to make a great argument to convince them that they're wrong and you're right. Can you see that? And so there's a bunch of verses, and if you want these from me, I could probably maybe post these on Facebook at another time. Uh, Matthew 12, uh, 38 through 39 uh, John 2, 18, John 5, 30. All of these are moments in time where the Jewish, the Pharisees were saying, prove to me that you really are God. You say that you are, then prove it. Do something miraculous, and then I'll believe. And then the Greeks were saying, we value influential philosophers, and we value all these poets, and we rejected the gospel because human wisdom doesn't, it doesn't line up. Like this idea of Jesus being dying on a cross like doesn't line up. And we're gonna talk about that in just a minute. Verse 23, but we preach about the crucified Christ, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. So why would this be a stumbling block? Why would the cross be a stumbling block? Well, for the Jews who wanted proof, right? They wanted something miraculous. Jesus is on the cross and what do people say to him? Come off the cross. Get off that cross and we'll believe you. And so that's the way they see this thing. And so for them, the idea of Jesus on a cross, this cross being something that is like a a horrible, um, terrible thing, um, it's something that they would have seen it as a curse of God. They would have seen it not as God's great triumph, but God's great defeat if the cross is true. And so they were looking for Jesus to come off the cross and then be their strong military political leader. That's what they wanted. And it didn't happen to go that way, did it? And so for for them, the cross is foolishness. They're like, why would we believe that? That's ridiculous. So for the Gentile, they would see the crucified cross as someone who's also a failure. He would not be the model for influence. He would not be the model of philosophy, but rather he would be seen as weak someone who died a terrible death, and someone who would be completely non-influential in life. No influence from this guy because he's on a cross. They would also see Jesus and be like, okay, well, if you really are God, then you couldn't even overcome your human enemies, could you? And so they would see that 
That's foolish. How could Jesus, someone not even come over, overcome his human enemies, how could that possibly be someone who is strong? And how could that possibly be something that is great? And so it's very, very offensive. Have you ever talked to somebody about Jesus and get a negative reaction? It happens. And I always kind of wonder about, like, like, why is it so offensive? Why is Jesus so offensive to people? I always kind of struggle with that. But I think this is it. I think depending on which camp they hit, they kind of go, it's either Jesus is not the smartest guy in the room, or he couldn't even save himself. It's ridiculous. And so I think that is the perspective. So let's keep going on, lest we leave it right there. Verse 24 But for those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God, and he is the wisdom of God. So to us, Jesus is not a failure. He is the culmination of all all of God's power and wisdom to save us. It's a very different perspective. To us, when God's grace touches our hearts and our lives, Human wisdom has shifted now, and it's seen how it truly is. It's really foolish. We understand now the power of the cross and why the cross had to happen. We understand that how spectacular Jesus is and how hugely important it is that he would die for our sins and be raised three days later. We understand that it needs to be Jesus, like only God himself, like God as man, so Jesus, only he could truly pay for the penalty of our sin, no one else. And we understand that to be saved is to be folded into the family of God. Verse 25, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than any human strength. I really struggled with this verse for a long time as I was kind of researching the stuff and, and, and praying about it, and I thought, you know, the first question I had was, how can God be remotely foolish? How can that even happen? How can God be even remotely wise? It doesn't make any sense if I translate and kind of interpret that verse that way. It doesn't fit with the rest of the Bible, that God is all-powerful. There is no weakness in him at all. And there is no foolishness in God. So how does this fit? And here's what I came up with, and I think this is the way to see this. The thing that we perceive to be foolish, the cross, is wiser than any human wisdom. Does that make sense to everybody? The thing that we perceive to be foolish, the cross, okay? So that's what he's saying. For the foolishness of God, for the cross of God is wiser than human history. And the thing that we perceive to be weak, Jesus on the cross, is this thing of weakness that looks weak, The cross is indeed stronger than our greatest effort. This is why. Because the cross goes after our heart and not our head. So you think about these two camps, right? Prove it. Prove it. It's right here in your head. But does that really change your heart? And godly wisdom, the the wisdom of the cross, is all about heart change. It's all about that. And so that's what the gospel does. It exposes the reality of our wicked hearts. 
we really tra- truly can't see how wicked and how terrible we really are without the cross because we think that we are good people. We think that we do good things and we don't treat people poorly, or maybe we do, and we just don't see us treating people poorly, and we think that we're ultimately good, but the reality is that we're ultimately bad, and we only see that when we encounter somebody who is perfect, which is Jesus. The gospel is stronger than our greatest weakness. This gospel is stronger than our greatest sin. And so you may be sitting here today and you're thinking, my life is in shambles or I am pursuing this sin or that sin. How could God possibly change my heart? How could possibly God do anything remotely in my life that would be revolutionary? I am just way too far gone. And that is not true at all. Because through the cross, God is strong. And so it is an amazing thing. It should be comforting to all of us when we look at our lives and we realize that God is very capable of rescuing us no matter where we are. You may be a Christian, and in your life, your Christian life, you're thinking, you know what? I became, I got saved. You know, Jesus saved me. I remember when that happened, and I know that happened, but my life is just, I just haven't grown at all. It just hasn't happened. And that's what we're going to talk about next in verse 26. He says this, and he's telling the people, he says, remember all these things. Think about the circumstances of your call, brothers and sisters. Not many were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were born to a privileged position. You see, God is in the business of saving the broken, the weak, the needy, the lonely. Generally speaking, like these are the people who have gotten to the point in life where they realize that their quest to be self-sufficient just doesn't work anymore. And that's where every single person who becomes a true follower of Jesus has to get to. You have to get to the place where you understand that my life, living it separate from God, just doesn't work, and I need God to enter my life. That's where we all have to get to, every single one of us. And so for those of us that are Christians that aren't really growing anymore, we really have to kind of hit the reset button uh, of our faith. And here's what this means. We have trusted Jesus to save us, but we are not trusting Jesus to change us. We think that change comes through human, human effort. That's what we think. And that is worldly wisdom. The same worldly wisdom that says that you can't get to God, like you can get to God by doing good things, okay? That's what the world says. You need to do good things, don't do bad things, and if your good weighs out your bad, then you'll make it to heaven, you'll see God someday. That's how I grew up my entire, like 17 years of my life. That's what I believed. If I did enough good things and they outweighed my bad, then I would be in heaven. And that was a total lie. It doesn't work that way. Almost every religion that's out there is focused on that, human effort. And so it's funny that we would come to know Jesus by surrendering our lives, but we would not surrender our lives to let him change us and grow us. See how the shift? So our lives should always be from beginning to end about godly wisdom. It's always about me surrendering my life to Jesus. I surrender my life to Jesus and he saves me. I surrender my life to Jesus and he continues to save me from all this garbage that's happening in my life. And he changes my heart 
instead of being this callous, nasty thing, and he purifies it. But that's what he does, not me. And I respond to him, and I say, I just want to honor you with my life, and I just want to be obedient, and I just want you to change me and make me a better person because that shows that he's doing the work and not me. And that's really what he's saying. Um, Let's jump over to this next verse, 27. But God chose what the world thinks foolish to shame the wise, and God chose what the world thinks weak to shame the strong. Through the cross, God has flipped everything upside down. Everything. He says, love your enemies. I can't do that. (laughs) Like there's people, like I'm thinking of somebody right now and I'm like, I'm having a hard time loving them. But that's what Jesus does. He flips all this upside down. He says, love your enemies. He says, the first will be last and the last will be first. When I went to the DMV over in Fayette County, like I wanted to literally just walk in and nobody's there and do my thing and then go, right? I walked in, there was a massive line like out the door. I'm like, why are there this many people getting a driver's license? This doesn't make any sense. I left because I didn't want to be last in a line. Those are the kind of things we think that we should be first. That is human wisdom. Me, me, me. And God's saying no. It's okay for you to be last in life. Instead of exalting yourself, I will exalt you. We say that the strong, well, God says that the strong will be overcome by the weak. It'll be a shame someday when the the people of our world who have just pursued worldly wisdom all their entire lives encounter reality of God. Hopefully this happens before they die. And I think if I lived my life that way, I'd sit back and go, oh, what a shame that I just didn't give in to the godly wisdom and give in to the cross. God chose people who are truly weak to shame the strong because ultimately he's just looking for humility. You think back to the beginning of the Bible, the very first sin was pride. And so it's no different for us today. Pride equals self-sufficiency, and that's the way we live. As Christians and non-Christians, we kind of do the same thing. Um, and so God is looking for humility. He's looking for people who just say, you know what? I don't have it all together. I just, I need you. Let's go to the next verse here. Verse 28, God chose what is low and despised in the world, what is regarded as nothing, to set aside what is regarded as something so that no one can boast in his presence. So who are the low who are these needy people? They're the mentally challenged. They're the people that came here a couple months ago that just hung out um, from Capernaum, uh, a young life ministry. They're those people. It's amazing. It's the outsider. It's the sick. It's the lonely. It's the people who need, who are just needy people. Or the people just don't have life all figured out and don't have it all together. They're us. That's who the lowly are. The problem is, is that if you don't know Jesus yet, you don't know that you're necessarily lowly. And if you do, don't know Jesus and you think you're lowly, then 
you're just searching for something. You're like, what is it? What is it that's gonna fulfill me and make me new and make me the way God really wanted me to be? Verse 30 is the last one. He says, he is the reason you have a relationship with Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom for God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written, let no one boast, boast, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The credit for our salvation, the credit for us becoming Christians, for beginning saved, all belongs to God because he's the one that has enabled that to happen. Without God, there would be no salvation. There would be no Jesus. There would be no cross. There would be no resurrection. None of that would happen. And so it's all about God. It's not about my human effort. It's not about these good things that I think that I can do to somehow impress God. We need the cross today. And so let me hit these four things that are in this verse, wisdom. Ultimately, wisdom is found in Jesus, right? So our union with Christ, so when we become a Christian, that should change our value system, and our value should be God's wisdom above all, okay? So where do we find God's wisdom? We find that, one, through the Bible. So we should value the Bible as our grid for all understanding and all decision-making, okay? And then human wisdom falls under that. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be wise and make good choices, but they all fall underneath the grid of what is biblical and what is godly wisdom and what does Jesus want me to do with my life or how can I honor him most. Every single decision in life comes from there. That is the first thing that changes. So we realign our entire lives around Jesus. Two, second one here is our righteousness is found in Jesus. We've been giving a right standing with God through the cross. We haven't earned it. We haven't somehow done great things and God's like all of a sudden impressed. Like, whoa, look at Jason. That's amazing. I can't believe he did that. Silly. In the Old Testament, it says all of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. The things that we think that are good, not really all that good. A lot of times we do good things with bad motivation and that just kind of ruins it, doesn't it? And so our righteousness comes through the cross, sanctification. Sanctification is just a fancy church word that means growth as a Christian. So you can put that in there. That purity or that growth as a Christian is found in Jesus. And it should characterize our daily lives. If you are a struck, stuck Christian, this is where you're stuck, you might understand the wisdom of God and value the Bible, you might understand that you're saved and you're righteous because of what Jesus did, but maybe you don't understand that God changes you and not you changes you. And that might be why you're stuck and you're not growing as a Christian. If you're the kind of person that says you're a Christian, but you're still dealing with the same external sins that you dealt with five years ago, you haven't really grown. Grown. Make sense, everybody? That's the reality of where we are. If you're dealing with the same things you did the last couple years, then you probably haven't grown as a Christian. And the reason you haven't grown is because you haven't moved from milk to solid food. And that happens when you surrender your life more to Jesus. That's where that happens. 
And so if you're feeling stuck today, that's the solution. You just pray and you say, God, I give this to you. I need you to help me. I surrender my life to you. I know this is the battle. Please give me the strength to overcome. That's how it happens. Sanctification found in Jesus. And the fourth one is redemption is found in Jesus. We've been bought with the price of Jesus. We are redeemed. We are like set aside. We're part of the family of God, and it's a very important thing. So if we choose to live a life without Jesus, this is what it looks like. If we choose a life without Jesus, we will follow our earthly wisdom or the crazy wisdom of other people that we think are smart, that they're really not. And it's the fact that Jesus has died for us seems very foolish. Why, would, why could we possibly believe in that? Without Jesus, we will seek to be self-righteous. We will judge other people based upon an arbitrary set of rules. We'll make up our rules of what we think is right and wrong. It won't be biblical because it's not based on the Bible. And we'll say that's wrong, and we will just judge, 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 judge. That's where we'll be. Third thing, we will choose our own type of sanctification, and that'll come through either human effort, I'm gonna be a good person because I'm gonna try harder, or I'm not gonna care about sanctification, I'm just gonna live in human license and I'm gonna do whatever I wanna do. I'm just gonna live a life of anarchy, basically, is what that means. Hurt whoever I want because life is all about me. But the fourth thing, and this is the biggest one, a life without Jesus will never, ever feel redeemed. You will always feel unsteady. You will always feel uncertain about life. You will always feel that life has no purpose. You will always feel that life has no meaning. You will feel like nobody really has your back. And you'll be like, what in the world am I doing here? And I think that is a very hopeless place to be, and that is a place that Jesus doesn't want us to live because he wants us to live connected as part of his family, as part of his body. He wants us to be with him. He wants us to understand that the cross is truly not foolish, but so wise and so powerful, and that the cross can penetrate our deepest sin and our deepest anguish at any point in time. It's an amazing thing. And so that should give us encouragement. For those of us that are searching, you should be encouraged. Be like, maybe Jesus is worth taking a look at. If you didn't really believe that, you probably wouldn't be here. For those of us that are Christians that are just struggling, that should give you comfort to know that God wants the best for you. His way of living is the best way. He wants to change your heart. And when your heart changes, your actions change. And for those of us potentially that are doing well, you feel like, you know what? We truly understand more and more every day how our sin is actually worse than we thought it was the day before. I used to think, there was a time in my life, and I'll just wrap up with this, there was a time in my life as a, as a youth pastor, I thought, I would sit back and then look at my life and think there was absolutely nothing wrong with my life. That, like in a sense that my life was without sin, <laughs> you know? And I, was, and I was like, man, that doesn't make, like that is weird. Like I would never ever tell anybody that, ever, ever. That would be horrible. 
But I felt that way. I felt like my life was all great because I just am like a superhuman person and I'm good. And it wasn't until I understand and understood that the gospel penetrates my heart in such a, a huge and a powerful way that I started to, and, and surrounded myself with people who would say, you know what? This is what's happening in your life. What does that say about where your heart is? Because our heart really controls our actions. And when people around me started saying that, that was revolutionary. And now I look at my life and I think, it's despicable. <laughs> I'm like, I can't believe I think the things I think and I say the things I think and I don't say some of the things that I think <laughs> and I do things that I do and it's a struggle. But here's the beauty of that. That should always drive us back to the cross in those moments where we say, Jesus, look at this. You've shown me this. I need you. I need you. And that's, no matter where you are in life, that's the point that you have to get to where you say, I just need you. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.